title of today's sermon is Sufficiency and Submission. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, sometimes called the perfection of Scripture, means that Scripture is clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibilities to God. Some of you have never heard of the definition of the doctrine of sufficiency. It means that Scripture is clear enough, it has clarity, it is clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibilities to God. It's an ethical doctrine. It's ethical because it takes away any excuses for disobedience. See, no one can say that God has not revealed enough for us to be saved or to live a life that is pleasing to Him. See, Scripture makes us competent and equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 it is God breathed in that sense. And so we do not need to add to it to meet today's challenges, and we don't need to subtract from it in order to mesh with today's ideals. See, the Word of God is perfect and complete, giving us all that we need to know about Christ, salvation, and godliness. As the church father Athanasius put it, The sacred and divinely inspired scriptures are sufficient for the exposition of the truth. And of the four attributes of scripture, there are four authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. When we refer to scripture itself, this may be the one that we evangelicals forget first. If authority is the liberal problem, and clarity the postmodern problem, and the necessity of the scriptures the problem for atheists, and agnostics, and certainly sufficiency is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. So we can say all the right things about the Bible and even read it quite regularly, but when life gets difficult or just a bit boring, we often look for new words, new revelation, new intriguing ideas, new experiences to bring us closer to God. It's amazing that we feel rather ho-hum about the New Testament's description of heaven, but then we are mesmerized by the accounts of school-aged children who claim to have gone there and back. We have magazine articles that talk about my conversation with God, to best-selling books where God is depicted as giving special private communications, and sequels of it come out. And we can easily operate as if the Bible were not enough. It was as if we could only have something just a little bit more than Scripture. Then we'd be really close to Jesus and know His love for us for sure. Unless, of course, the finality of Christ's redemption for us is intimately tied to the finality of His revelation to us. See, Scripture is enough because the work of Christ is enough. They stand or fall together. The Son's redemption and the Son's revelation must both be sufficient. And as such, there's nothing more to be done and nothing more to be known for our salvation and for our Christian walk than what we see and know about Christ and through Christ and His Spirit-inspired and God-breathed book. And since the Bible is sufficient, we can expect the Word of God to be relevant to all of our life. You see, God has given us all we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. Scripture is enough to make us wise for salvation and holy unto the Lord. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. See, if we learn to read the Bible down into our hearts, 
If we learn to read it across the entire plot line of Scripture, if we learn to read it out to the end of the story, and if we learn to read it up to the glory of God in the face of Christ, then we will find that every bit of the Bible is profitable for us. And to affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything that we want to know about everything, but it does tell us everything that we need to know about what matters most. Scripture does not give exhaustive information on every subject, but in every subject on which it speaks, it says only what is true. And in its truth, we have enough knowledge to turn from sin, find a Savior, make good decisions, please God, and get to the root of our deepest problems. All the above is from Kevin DeYoung and taking God at his word. I didn't want it to be read. I wanted it to be preached. And so today I say to you, today is an encouragement to trust. I think that submission is a sufficiency question. Question being, who is sufficient for me? Uh, this sermon, for the most part, I believe is Matt's. Uh, he really wanted to preach it today. Um, but with weddings and uh, uh, family shepherd class coming, uh, and among other things, uh, it seemed wisest for me to bring the message today. Uh, but I'm known as Mama Bear, and I'm supposed to be the encouraging one. Um, so we wanted him to be the encouraging one. If I say anything encouraging today, it's from him. He feels not bad, but and not guilty, but, you know, for the past two weeks, ladies. Um, so I'm here to encourage you. If I say anything mean, it's my fault, and he didn't mean it, all right? I promise. Um, or I'm just going to blame Kevin DeYoung already. So uh, that being said, um, let's pray, and then we will dive into not Ephesians today, but First Peter. Father, you are good to us. Father, I'm encouraged to see a room full of saints that are pursuing you. Father, I'm encouraged to see uh, people here, uh, even for the first time, on a topic that is just difficult in our culture. And Father, I thank you for the ability to be able to stand up here on your word and not on eggshells. Uh, to be sensitive still and caring uh, for our people, but Father, that you would show your sheep the gentle and kind words of your voice. And Father, let us trust that those that are your sheep will hear your voice in the text today. I do want to be encouraging. I do want to care for them uh, through the Spirit as I bring the Word to them. Uh, Father, I pray that that would indeed be the case, that you would supernaturally speak through me in these times. But Father, I pray that those that are not comforted by today would see, uh, short of it being any fault of mine, uh, that Father, they are not your sheep and they did not hear rightly. Father, even if we are challenged today yet again on a, on a very touchy subject, uh, Father, we can see your guiding and providential hand in giving us what we need to live a life of faith by your Son. Father, we are so thankful today for the Spirit empowering us to be able to listen well, to illuminate the text in our hearts, and Father, to encourage us and comfort us in the love that you give. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1-6. through 6. We've been in Ephesians for 60-something weeks. I think we're about to break 70 if we haven't already. I want to step out, not because Ephesians doesn't speak to this. Obviously, we've been there for the past two weeks. 
want to take the opportunity today to jump to a parallel passage uh, that helps give us some specific instructions for some specific situations. Now, what is beautiful about today is that we're going to look at one of the worst situations possible. And by implication, we're going to see that that worst situation gives us all that we need for up into the best. So we get to see the entire spectrum today, I think, in this idea of submission of a wife to her husband. Let's read the, read the passage. It's likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The first thing I want you to see today is that you need to arrange your life under your husband even if he doesn't obey the word. Arrange your life under your husband even if he doesn't obey the word. Now we would be in great error if we didn't recognize beginning today that this is not the first instructions that Peter gives in his first epistle. He has already mentioned several other times in which all Christians are to be submissive, no matter what the leadership looks like, particularly to government. And with the exception of one government in history, no government has been godly. And even that one government was not the fulfillment, right? The monarchy under David was supposed to be the time when peace came, right? When the Israelites were in their land, there was peace, and that was one of the significant markers of the messiahship that would come. And indeed, he had peace for a time, but it very quickly fell apart. And we see then that no government since, even in the medieval times when they were God and country, was still nothing close to what we would desire in a godly government. I don't need to begin to walk down that path today, uh, but we are clearly still not there. So when we get to chapter 3 and he begins to say, likewise, it means everything in chapter 1 and 2 is incumbent on the situation. Any principles that were gained in chapters 1 and 2 are now likewise put in the wife's. And when the wife comes to this chapter, thank you, she sees that she is also likewise in the other cases where we are to be submissive. She is to be subject to her own husband. We need to realize that all of your husbands at some time will not obey the word. Unfortunately, for many, that may even be their M.O. But even for those that are believers and are seeking after God are still at some time not going to obey the word. Either they will choose to do something that is absolutely anyways against the word, or they will choose to do something that's right, but they'll do it with the wrong motives. Now, in our particular case with this text, 
we do want to focus in on, on what he's specifically referring to. That Peter's speaking of a husband who's lost. Of a husband who does not obey the word. This means that even his godly choices, good things that match up with Scripture, he's still doing them with sinful motivations. He can give all the money he wants to charity and it's still sin. Why? He's doing it to honor himself, to look good, to increase standing. It's certainly not to honor God. He can save an old lady from a coming car and it's still sin. Why does he do it? It's not to honor God. And anything, believer or not, that is done apart from honoring God and apart from the enabling grace of the Spirit is sinful. So in this particular case, we're at the extreme of the extreme. This is a lost husband who everything he does right or wrong ethically is still sinful and that he does it not to the glory of God. Verse 1, Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So again, we have the two previous examples with likewise the civil authorities and even servants to masters. Again, he says, honor them. Submit to the government. Be subject to. And now we still have an ongoing Word. Now, this is going to be familiar to some of you that have been walking with us for about a month. But this idea of arranging yourself under, right, and being submissive, that's how we've been uh, terming it, is in the middle voice. You've all heard that for the most part, right? We've been talking about that. It's be submissive. It's still in the middle voice. This is Peter, not Paul, right? In, in Ephesians 5, we hear the middle voice from Paul. In 1 Peter 3, we hear the middle voice from Peter. They use the same language. This idea of being submissive is still the middle voice of you place yourself under. He does not submit you. We would absolutely stand against that for anyone who is here today for the first time. We do not say, husbands, make your wives submit. That is absolutely against Scripture. The middle voice says, wives, submit yourself. You place yourself under. In the previous cases, for civilians or citizens, we are to place ourselves under. The government is not to make us submit in an ultimate sense. They obviously bear the, the, the sword. But our role as Christians is to place ourselves under, not to come against, but to place ourselves under. Same with servants uh, under masters. And so, again, again, not walking on eggshells, but for the sake of clarity, submission does not imply any moral, intellectual, or spiritual inferiority in the family, in the workplace, or in society in general. It's along the same lines of a commanding officer is not necessarily superior in character, in ability, in intellect, in anything to the troops that are under him, but his authority is vital to the proper functioning of the unit, right? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. And in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? 
Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So submitting oneself to another is the opposite of self-assertion, right? It's the opposite of self-assertion, the opposite of an independent or an autocratic spirit. And for those of you that have been walking with us for some time, this is the opposite of the Garden of Eden. The, the idea of submission is the opposite of self-assertion. In the Garden of Eden, when Eve and then Adam ate from the tree, we, they practiced what we term moral legislative autonomy. Right? They wanted to legislate by themselves moral law, moral legislative autonomy. Now, when we have submission in mind, and what they were supposed to do in the garden, we place ourselves under their law. We no longer act autonomously. We no longer legislate. You see the reversal of that? That's the design of relationship from man to God and from uh, and, and in any relationship, whether it be the husband and wife spousal relationship, whether it be the workplace. That placing yourself under removes your autonomy, your self-assertion, and you say, I will follow and I will obey. I trust you. You are my authority. And I will trust God. See, it's interesting that he's not telling the wife of the unbelieving husband to leave him. He says, stay there. Now, if he won't have it, and he leaves, then you are free. You don't have to fight for that. You're free to, to, to dissolve that relationship. Same for the husband who has an unbelieving wife. Stay there unless she will have none of it and separate. It's about peace, right? God has called you to peace. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And so in our relationships, we're not told to leave, we're told to stay. And what is he saying today? Stay and submit yourself. Even under a husband who is hostile to your true Master. This idea of submitting yourself, particularly in a case where the circumstances just aren't good. Submission involves being satisfied, specifically at times with less than one may deserve, feel they deserve, or claim even as a right. And finding fulfillment in the spiritual blessings of union with Christ that we see in Ephesians 1. I know it was over a year ago, but that chapter 1 3 through 10 is absolutely pivotal to having an understanding of what submission should look like, even in a less than ideal situation. We have to be satisfied at times with less than what we may feel that we deserve, what we may indeed truthfully deserve, or what we may have as our right. In a marriage relationship, when we make our vows, we basically have rights, right? They give us pledges, and we have rights to those pledges. We have rights then over their bodies, which is absolutely contrary to what the Greco-Roman culture would say. And it goes both ways in that sense. And when one or the other fails to meet those rights or obligations, you still don't assert yourself. You patiently, humbly submit. This idea of being assigned a life like we see in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. Has tons of application for this idea of submission. I've always been a number two guy, right? I, I was low brass. 
I was an offensive lineman. I was then bass guitar and drums. I'm, I'm never the, the trumpet sax guy out front. I'm never the, uh, the raging, screaming guitar with the hat on who plays like this. Um, I'm never that guy. I'm not the lead elder. I'm, I'm second chair. And I'm happy with that position. I've learned to lead in many of those positions. In a very real way, I lead on drums. I, I can, you'll certainly see with one of our new songs, me potentially mess up, um, that we're going to do after the sermon. Uh, I, I, I can lead, right? But I can do it from a second chair. And all the while, I can submit myself under the conductor, under the coach, under the quarterback, under the lead singer. I can submit myself under those things to function well. And I have no problems with that. That doesn't make me less than the quarterback. That doesn't make me less than the conductor or the trumpet player or the sax player. With the sax player, it makes me better, but that's woodwinds. I married one, I'm sorry. Um, It doesn't change our standing. It doesn't change my value. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm inferior, I'm, I'm not as smart, that I'm not as capable, any of those things. That's my role. And God has prepared me for that since I was like seven. And, and that's where I flourish today. I do not flourish when I'm put in that top, top position. It's not my gifting, it's not my strength, it's not my calling. So for us, I think we, we don't do a great job explaining the visuals that we use uh, for our sermon series. Uh, but for this chess one, I really think this is a valuable illustration. You think about chess, and I, I found out this week that some people have actually never played chess, which is a little weird. Um, two positions, right? King and queen. You familiar with those? Yes? Good. Okay. Don't have to waste time. What can the king do? Forward, sideways, diagonal. Done, right? One square. What can the queen do? Anything she wants, right? All right. I don't know if this is an insight into medieval times or not, but anything she wants, with the exception of the weird uh, knight thing, right? Anything she wants. The queen is infinitely more capable than the king when you're playing chess, right? Can the game continue without the queen? Can it continue without the king? In this particular case, the king has value in the sense that the game continues and he's the ultimate objective. But when you look at at ability, the queen can do anything she wants, but the king is the one in the position of authority. Make sense? She's infinitely more capable, but she's still in the game submissive to the king. The game is over without the king's role. And so for us, when this idea of being subject for the last time really, before we jump into beating up the men for the next month. Um, I want you to see value is the same. It is a different role. And the only place that Christians seem to have a problem with that is in the marriage. And it scares me when Matt, two weeks ago, I I believe, is, is preaching, and he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he has to say the words, so what does that mean? It means what it says. It means what it says. We don't have a problem with that when we're in John 3.16. We don't have a problem with that in John 1. We don't have a problem with that in Romans 8. It means what it says, and thank God it means what it says. But when we get to Ephesians 5, all of a sudden, that one verse, what does it mean? It can't really mean what it says. Do we do that with with, with John 3.16 and 17? 
We don't. And that is, a, that is a scary position to be in. And so I really think that this idea of submission is a faulty sufficiency in our eyes. The Scripture is not sufficient in everything that it says. That it somehow misses the mark in this. And my plea today for you is to see that indeed this application specifically of a wife under a husband is a good, God-honoring thing for the care and protection of his daughters. And it is a good, God-honoring thing for the care and protection of those ladies who are not his daughters. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It is not subject to the fall. It is for all creation as a general grace or common grace. And so we need to see today that God's relational order is absolutely good. It is a good gift from a good father. So let's look at our situation specifically. They do not obey the word. This describes the unbelieving husband's condition as a rejecter of the gospel. All right, so ladies, I'm specifically speaking a lot to you today, I understand. Put your husband out of mind. Put yourself under this man now who is an unbelieving husband. He's a rejecter of the gospel and of God. John MacArthur says this, Amazingly, in spite of the profound enmity of his soul towards the Lord, if his Christian wife will continue to submit to him, she might be the instrument that God uses to win him to Christ without a word. You see, the wife's reverence for God is her motivation for submitting to her husband, regardless of whether the husband is harsh or kind. You see, the antagonism her faith might produce is to be endured for the sake of Christ and for the possible conversion of her husband. You see, why would a wife's conversion likely provoke antagonism from her husband? We think back to the specific culture. We want to understand Scripture in light of the original before we bring it to our time. You see that the, the, the wife in the Greco-Roman culture was expected that she would have no friends of her own. The only friends that she had were her husband's friends. She would also worship his gods. Those are really the two pillars of uh, family order and management. And so the very fact that she would adopt any religion other than her husband's violates the Greco-Roman idea of an orderly home. The husband in the society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus as rebellion especially if she worshiped Christ exclusively. It's one thing to just throw him into the pantheon. It's another to worship him exclusively. And so the husband would feel embarrassment and suffer criticism for not properly managing his household. And it may potentially disqualify him from positions or honors. And And then she goes to a Christian worship service and has fellowship with other people, and it could invite her to have friends that are not her husband's friends. And what's interesting is that in this text, it is absolutely significant that Peter does not directly address any of these particular concerns. All the conditions that we've been talking about these past two weeks that we, we, our hearts just want to search for, submit to your husband, except, okay, I'm good now, except for these conditions. There's no exception clause. And Peter doesn't give exceptions. He does not directly address any of these particular concerns. For instance, he neither orders the wife to attend Christian worship, 
nor gives her permission to stay home and worship privately in her heart. He doesn't say. He instructs her simply to submit to her own husband's wishes. To not attend the gathering of the believers, we would say, is probably sin, right? According to Hebrews, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. We understand that our gathering here today is necessary for the continuation and perseverance of our faith. Not the accomplishment of our salvation, but the perseverance in. And he doesn't say to her, go to worship no matter what happens. Abandon responsibilities. Run from him on Sunday morning so that you may escape and attend worship. It doesn't say any of that. He could say, no, you are not to gather with those people. And she is to submit to him without a word. That's intense. That's intense. That is what most of our fears are when we hear this idea of submission. That's what most of us run to. That's the first thing that we think of is something that intense. That's not what's going on. That's not what submission and leadership should look like. And it is sinful erring on our part for our minds to want to run to that example every time we hear the S word. But that is where our hearts run. That's where our culture pushes. And that is not the picture of Scripture. But it's important for us to understand that in this particular case, under a husband who is at enmity with God, she is still to submit to him. God can still lead through your husband's lack of obedience to the word. Believer or unbeliever. And God can still care for you through your husband's lack of obedience to the word. Do you trust that? Do you trust the sufficiency of Scripture? In our ACBC counseling training, the clarion call in that class and in the entire program of counseling, is the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't appeal to outside authorities. Scripture speaks to to everything. Always, always submit to your own husband. Why? The goal is for your husband to be won by the gospel. The goal is for your husband to be won by the gospel. See, earlier in that intense situation that I described, what was all of our concern when I was talking about it? She needs to be able to go to church. She needs to be able to gather. She, she, oh, she, he. The goal is for him to be won by the gospel. The submission in this case is, is, is to serve the husband. Not in a demeaning way. And if we really want to go that route, all I'm going to do is take you to the upper room where the Son of God gets on his knees and washes the feet of disciples. But yet, you can serve in that manner and you'll be okay. It's not to serve him in a demeaning way. It's to serve him unto salvation. The goal is for your husband. Men, for those of you with unbelieving wives, the goal is your wife. Lead her well to the Lord. Kindly, with patience, with understanding. Understand that only God can save. Before I get your hopes up too much and say it's on you, it's not. Only God can save. 1 Corinthians 7.12, again, we drop down into 
verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It, it isn't ultimately on you. But Peter's goal is for you to certainly be the best representation of the gospel in the most intimate way anyone could be. And so, this is directly from Matt. I love this line. If you live and speak the words of the shepherd and your husband has chosen, is chosen by God, he will come. He will come. John 10, right? With the sheep. I prayed it earlier in my, in my prayer. If he is indeed a sheep, he will come. He will hear the shepherd's voice and he will come. If you live and speak the words of a shepherd to your husband and he is chosen by God, he will come. But the goal is not for you to have a good marriage or a good father for your children or even to have a peaceful home. The goal is for your husband to worship God. That's why you do this. But it's so easy for us to, to drop into these ideas of, well, we need to submit and lead so that our marriage is good. What happens if you both do those things, but there's so much sin in both of your lives that all you do is keep sanctifying each other a lot? And it doesn't seem really good. In fact, it seems very frustrating. And you keep finding new sin and working through it and repenting of it and moving on and finding another sin. That's a good marriage. And it may not feel like it. It's not just to have a good father for your children. Again, you're called to be a wife first and a mother second. We so easily drop into these ulterior and exterior goals. And then we try to do the right thing by submitting in order to gain something with the wrong motive. That's not submission. That's manipulation. This is easy and it's difficult. It's easy in the sense that God gives the power by the Spirit. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when my Spirit comes upon you particularly in that specific context, to be my witnesses. I think by implication, you can have power here with the Spirit when it comes upon you, when you're a believer. And now you can be a witness to the nations, and in this particular case, the nations in your home. So how do you go about doing this? How do you go about doing this? Without a word. I thought we just said, speak the words of the shepherd. Yeah, we're not referring to the Word of God. The Word of God is absolutely um, vital to salvation. But we're talking about the wife's spoken words, the way that she goes about bringing him and showing this submission, right? Because in 1 Peter 1, chapter 23, the same book, some earlier context for us, it says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So Peter knows and means, even in chapter 3, that the Word is absolutely necessary for salvation. If he is to be saved, it will come by the Word of God. John MacArthur clarifies this. He says, Peter's point is that the wife's godly behavior is the most valuable testimony to open the husband's heart to the gospel. He will need to hear the words of salvation, and perhaps from her, but it will be as he is able to observe her submission as a faithful wife that she truly commends the gospel to him. And how a believer lives in that most particularly intimate relationship of husband and wife helps make the grace of Christ believable. I, I love that explanation. It, it, it's a lovely, gracious, and submissive attitude that's the most effective evangelistic tool believing wives possess in their arsenal. 
That she's not to resort to constant arguments, not to nagging discussions. That's the tendency that we fall into is this prickling, this pushing and pulling that happens. Do this, no, not like that. Do this, not like that. I can't do that because I'm a believer. And that's how she's going to respond. That's not the picture. That's not the picture. The picture is a lovely, gracious, and submissive attitude. It's the most effective tool she possesses. You should be always speaking the words of the shepherd. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to talk, but the talking is not going to be the thing that brings the switch, that shows him his need. Words are certainly effective and valuable, and again, the gospel is necessary for salvation. But her actions and attitudes and the way that she lives her life is so, so persuasive in giving great credence to the gospel. And as she lives and speaks the words of the shepherd, we're not talking about condemning all the time. We're talking about patience when he is harsh. We're talking about kindness when he's worn out, serving him and caring for him because he's your husband and because he's a creature of God, not yet a child, but a creature made in the image. I'm not talking about submitting to abuse. Even the Greco-Roman culture was against that. He would have been ostracized and punished for abusing his wife. But he did have control over her. She is speaking the words of the shepherd. Now for us, believers here today, if your husband is redeemed, your redeemed husband will be one to greater faith and continued salvation by these same commands. You want to encourage your husband in a way beyond any way that anyone could ever encourage your husband? Wife, do these things. Be lovely, be gracious, be submissive. He'll be one to greater faith and continued salvation by these same methods because the goal in this is to bring your husband to the gospel. Not for yourself, not for a better marriage, not for a better father, not for any of these things. Not for better standing, not for an easier life, not for more comfort, not for a bigger paycheck, not for all the comforts that you could possibly want. The goal is to win your husband to the Lord. How do we go about doing that if we're not to use lots of spoken words? God's instruction for living with a husband who doesn't obey the word, your conduct is what matters. Your conduct is what matters talked about it in a general sense so far. I'm going to see what Peter does to specifically instruct and in what manner it's to look like. Your conduct is what matters. Your words are a part of your conduct, yes? That's why we talked about it. I wanted to make sure that you, you understand the words of the shepherd idea. But when we talk about specifically conduct, it says this, respectful and pure in conduct, Right? You're demonstrating your sanctification through Christ by a life composed of irreproachable and pure conduct towards God and her husband. Again, the the standards that are set for the qualifications of an elder are for every believer. And elders are supposed to be above reproach. Wife, when you live in such a manner of being irreproachable, above reproach, you are bringing a good representation of a life submissive to Christ and your growing sanctification It's absolutely on display in this particular case when you do that. 
When you are respectful and pure in conduct, when you're irreproachable and are conducting yourself purely before the Lord and your husband, you're demonstrating your sanctification. Now, in this case, when it says respect, it literally means phobos, or fear. That's where we get our phobia. Fear. It's used in 2.17 to define the required attitude of those who give honor to God himself. It's the same word for giving honor, respect to God. In Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And respecting Christ, we are all on the same playing field when it comes to submission, when it comes to leadership and authority. Same playing field. But this respect is unto God as one people that is unified as we see in chapter 1, verse 10 of Ephesians. Everything is to be united in Christ and placed under His feet. We are all on one playing field, whether we're of the same ethnicity, whether we're of the same social standing, whether we're male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And this respect that we give is the same that we give to God. And so there's no reason not to give that also then to your husband. Why? Because he's your head. Just as Christ is the head of the church. I didn't earn anything for Jess. She doesn't get salvation through me. The reason she respects me at such a high level is because she respects God. And because the church respects God, our head. I'm her head in the marriage. And we respect that chain the same way. Now what's interesting is in Ephesians 5.22, Paul uses the same word, the exact same word for fear and respect. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It means show honor and respect to her husband as to the Lord. And we're going to see a very clear example of that shortly when it comes to Sarah and her conduct towards Abraham. But what you need to see is respectful and pure conduct. And as we talked about last week, not because of my performance, but because of my position. My position as head in our marriage. His position as head in your marriage is his position, irregardless of performance. And again, you're going to say, but, but, Peter says no. Even if your husband, your head, is at enmity with his head, God, submit to your own husbands. So with conduct, we have respect and then pure conduct. So your conduct is all about the heart, not the outward appearance. So we go on in verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So it doesn't prohibit wives from styling their hair, wearing jewelry or lovely clothing. This is an awkward position to preach after yesterday's wedding when people were doing their hair at 8 a.m. Crazy, crazy people. Um, We are talking about a regular pattern of life in this particular case, even though most of this is going to sound like yesterday in Springfield. Um, We're not talking about, you know, never styling your hair, wearing jewelry, or lovely clothing. That's not it. The point is that this was not to be the preoccupation or main concern. Again, pattern in the matter of drawing an unsaved husband to Christ. In the Greco-Roman culture, Women were devoted to superficial adornment. They're often wearing the best cosmetics available. They're dyeing their hair outlandish colors. They're braiding it elaborately. They're wearing, especially on their head, costly jewelry to crown their elegant clothing. You know, you've got to tie it in with accessories. I get it. Um, I have a bracelet. 
I have two, technically. Um, accessories matter. I get it. Um, and you know, my bold, you know, glasses. Here's the point. Seneca, a Roman philosopher, he referred to women in this time period who wore two or three fortunes in their ears. All right, we're talking you know, earrings. Fortunes. So, I mean, massive amounts of money in their ears. Plutarch, another one, admonishes that most women avoid going out of the house, right? If you take from them gold-embroidered shoes, bracelets, ankles, purple colors, and pearls, right? The things that make them pretty, they avoid going out because they don't want to be seen in their sweats, right? So I would update this quote with most women then avoid selfies if you take away their gold shoes, their bracelets, their ankles, their purple and pearls, right? You don't see a lot of women that way, right? Only in their best, only in their makeup, only at the best parts of their life, right? The Kodak moments. Braiding the hair and putting on gold jewelry or clothes makes no contribution to spiritual transformation. None. Yet such surface concerns still consume women in the present, even media-dominated culture. When we talked earlier about being able to read Scripture across the entire story from beginning to end, we've already talked about the garden. Let's jump to the prophets. In Isaiah 3, 16-24, long before Peter's time, God pronounced judgment on women's obsessive and ostentatious attention towards outward adornment through the prophet Isaiah. The Lord says in Isaiah 3.16, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. And in that day the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of a perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Why so much concern? Peter is encouraging Christian women not to lose their sense of value. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. Well, I lied. I've got another bold one coming. It's right together, all right? There's two things. Peter is encouraging. I'm encouraging Christian women do not lose your sense of of value. All right? Recognize the beauty of character that is far more vital and important than external beauty. I think something really interesting with this is that when it it, it talks here, let your adorning be the hidden person. The word person is actually man and the masculine I think this is similar to the inner man, like Pauline thinking, right? That we see in Ephesians. We just talked about three months ago. Um, The inner man, right? Put on or put off the former outward man and put on the new inner man, right? The one that is being renewed in Christ. And so this idea of adorning the hidden person of the heart is adorning the inner man. 
First Timothy 2, 8-10 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Here's the word again, likewise. Do all that, plus, I also say that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The second thing if you, I want you to hear, this beauty is available to all women, and it's much deeper and more valued by God. Do not lose your sense of value and recognize that this beauty is available to all women. The state of our media today says that this is an unattainable goal. And it will require half of your income and all of your time in magazines to even come close to attaining what the culture says. That is far from the truth of God. That is far from the hearts of godly men. Do not lose your sense of value and recognize that this beauty is available to all women and it is much deeper and more valued by God. This beautiful character is described as having a gentle and quiet spirit. The word gentle has like the sense of caress in it. But still, behind gentleness stands the strength of steel. This supreme characteristic of a gentle woman is that she lives under perfect control. I love that. She lives under perfect control. She's not given to panic, but she exudes quiet, great strength. She's humble and meek and and patient in her submissiveness. You want some application and takeaway for this week? Are you gentle? Is there this sweet sense of caress in it? Yet, Yet this quiet, great strength. You're not given to panic. One of the greatest things that most women will say that they need in a, in a husband is security. And when they don't find it in their husband, they very quickly then find it in their control of finances. And when finances get rough, what happens? Panic. Panic mode, right? Why? Because security has been shaken. And the godly woman finds her strength and her security not in her finances and also not in her husband. She finds it in the Lord. And so she's not given to panic, but she exudes great strength with a caress. The other word, quiet. Quiet, too, suggests being under control. It means to evidence a calming influence and tranquility of mind. This is not Gilmore Girls. This is the opposite. I watched most of that show with my wife. Servant leadership. And because I like their vocabulary. Um, <laughs> lots of words, out of control, panic mode, crisis all the time. That's not a godly woman. That's not great strength. It's not finding trust and, and hope in someone else. It's certainly possible for a woman's appearance to be so unkempt and unadorned as to embarrass and discourage her husband, to whom such indifference in the name of Christ would make the gospel offensive then and be just as spiritually detrimental as too much attention given to the external. So it, it's not a, abandon all hope, right? Um, take care of yourself is the point. This is the point, though. The Lord is most pleased when a believing woman's modest yet thoughtful and lovely adornment reflects the inner beauty Christ has fashioned in her. He is at work in your life, fashioning your heart, your inner man, 
and you adorn that, and you will see great beauty. And so together, these two words speak of strength of character and strong self-control and describes a person of quiet elegance and dignity. That is a stunning woman. Outward appearance is about drawing attention to yourself. Submission is about drawing attention to the one that's over you. I think the issue for us, though, is priorities. Some of us spend more time concerned about the outside, and we tend very little to the heart. Some of us are more intentional and insistent on our outside looking good than we are about our heart being right, our inner man being adorned. And if you think practically, how many of us could... (laughs) We would never, never go a day without makeup on, hair product, um, whatever it may be, right? But we can go multiple days without spending time in prayer and the Word. It's an issue of priority. It's an issue of necessity. What is, necess- what is necessary for me? Where do I find my sufficiency? So how do we develop a gentle and quiet spirit? We seek what's pleasing to the Lord. And this is what is pleasing to the Lord. A stunning woman is pleasing to the Lord. And it's precious to Him because it's His daughter. My, my daughter's snot and, and hair and three different sets of pajamas on and mismatched shoes on the wrong feet and toys that are beyond recognition and they're beautiful to me. Why? I mean, I, I still avoid the, the runny parts, but they're beautiful to me. Why? Because they're precious to me. They're precious to me. No matter really their external, they're not going to have a husband. All right, it's, it's the, the weirdo language that we talked about a couple weeks ago. They're not going to find a husband that way, um, or at least a good one. Uh, but she's precious to me, no matter what she looks like, because I'm concerned about her, the inner man. I'm concerned about the state of her soul. She's precious to me. You will be precious. You are precious to the Lord, no matter what you look like. Not a, no one in particular. All right, next point. You must, must, must hope in God. You must, must, must hope in God. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now there's a large part of me that really wants to just go to Genesis and camp out there, but I'm not. Um, We're going to stick here. He is making a callback, so we need, to, we need to understand some of the reference. This is not an unprecedented call of being submissive to your husbands. He says, this is how holy women who hoped in God. Hoped in God would mean Christian for the Old Testament, right? But Christian wasn't used until Antioch and Acts, right? This is how the holy women before, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, using the same language as the tithe through, by submitting by submitting. He's calling him. Right? This is a present participle. All right? She is continually doing this. By submitting and then in calling him Lord, this is a constant activity of hers. She is continually having this attitude of respect towards her husband. So you adorn yourself by submitting and by having this idea of respect. So I said we were going to come to it again. She calls him Lord. This is not uh, the capital L-O-R-D that we, we see when we refer to Jesus. This is the Lord and Master aspect, the kurios in the Greek. 
When we see this Lord thing, we're treating him as her Lord or Master. This comes from Genesis 18.12, if you want to look that up. It's going to be in Hebrew, um, if you look at the original language. But anyways, Genesis 18.12 is where we see this particular instance. But if we want to look at this pattern that she's doing, that he's referring to specifically, we want to look then at Genesis 12. It's of, of enormous relevance for this time. This is the key place where Sarah implicitly obeys Abraham by cooperating with his deceptive ruse in Pharaoh's court. Abraham's not leading well, particularly at this point. And what does she do? She submits. That's a big deal. And it's a big deal, too, for Peter to hearken back to it. We want to see this parallel, all right? See this parallel to the Christian wife called to suffer the husband who disobeys the word. The Christian wife is called to suffer. Now look, I try to be chivalrous as much as possible. I think the only thing that I don't do in classical chivalry is open the car door for my wife. I, I used to. I don't anymore. Shame. Get it. I, I, I totally agree with chivalry. All right, I get it. I, and I like that. And I, I, disdain, I have disdain for men who don't. We get so caught up in that, I think, and, and this protective aspect of the weaker vessel of, of, of taking care of them that we forget that our sisters in Christ are also called to suffer as much as their brothers in Christ. Even if the marriage is part of that. Before we are first husband and wife, we are brother and sister in Christ. And in, and in eternity, that's what we will be. Christian sisters, you're called to suffer. Peter's getting ready to talk about that. You're called to suffer as a daughter of the king. You're to fill up what is lacking, as Paul will talk about. You will suffer in this life and in your marriage. And it's for your good. It's for your good. James tells us that God is the Father of lights on high who gives good gifts to His children. He delights in that. Everything that comes from the hand of the Father is a good gift. And we have a couple songs coming up talking about this, particularly our, our last one today. And what the enemy means for evil, you, you turn it for our good. Whether it's from Satan or from sinful man, God is sovereign and ordering the affairs of men. And as we act, and it is evil to you, and suffering, it's for your good. It's for your good. Christian women, wives, suffering in a marriage is meant to show you that your husband is not Jesus. And it's meant to show you that you still need Jesus. You will be called to suffer. The other part of this parallel, the, the other running track here, is that Sarah's Christ-like decision to save her husband's life by being willing to suffer for his sake is the parallel track. While Abraham's conduct exemplifies a husband who's disobedient to the Word. In our protective Christian nature chivalry idea, 
I want to alleviate as much suffering as possible from my wife. But I'm going to mess up, and she's going to pay the price. And she's going to do it patiently and joyfully because it's for her good. And because it's meant to push her dependence on Christ. And because it serves me and my good. If she's living in the fruit of the Spirit. But that's the picture. And we have this callback from Peter to Genesis when Sarah suffered for Abraham's decision served him anyways, and ultimately saved her husband's life. All while he was being disobedient to the Lord. This is with Abraham, who's typically held up as a pattern of, of great faith, right? I mean, on, on one hand, in verse 1, we have a man who's at enmity with God and his word. And then in verse 5, we have a man who's held up as the great patriarch. And a perfect example of faith. And what do you do? Submit to your own husband. And see, when we talk about this idea of being children of Abraham, and you are her children, let's first talk about children of Abraham, not Sarah. By faith, all saints, anyone who is believing in Jesus, they are children of Abraham. He's saying that all who believe have followed the same path that Abraham took. He's the Old Testament model for believing God's word, specifically the promise, right, given to Abraham. And all after him who do the same then belong to the same family of faith. You see that in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians 3. In both cases, speaking largely to, uh, well, in Galatians speaking to Jewish audiences and in speaking to Romans, speaking to a Gentile uh, congregation that just has this massive influx of Jews back into the church. So it's important to see that relationship of the church to the promise of Abraham as an example. And so similarly, all believing wives who follow Sarah's example of submission and modesty have in that sense become her children. So as all God's children follow Abraham's faith in the example of trusting the promise of, of God, even in the face of childlessness for most of their life, right? That example, in this particular case, wives can become children of Sarah in certain words, by her example of submission and modesty. And so wives who follow that pattern have made the commitment to do what is right or good, even though, even though they might nevertheless have some serious fears as to where such submission under an unsaved husband could lead. Now, as we finish in chapter or in verse 6, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This time, the word fear... It's what we're used to. It's different than all the other ones that we talked about earlier when I said it's this idea of respect. In this particular case, fear means frightening or terrifying. And so it would be frightening or terrifying to have a husband that has absolute control over you like they did in that culture. It's an intense situation that we talked about earlier. And that leads to great fear and terror. And what does Peter say? You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything. That is frightening. Instead of succumbing to such terrors, those who, have, who are faithful to submit because it's good and right can be used by the Lord in the salvation of their husbands. Again, this is not talking about abuse. Bad in that culture, bad here, bad in the Bible. Clear. Even when it's scary, when things are at stake, when relationships are at stake, when, when social standing is at stake, when kids are at stake, don't be afraid. You do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
How can we operate without fear? God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's not. He's taken away fear. Why? Because he's given us righteousness. Because he's given us his word. He's given us his leadership. He's given us his standing. Our standing before God, when we go back to the gospel, that is the key underlying component of all of this, is that we are no longer under the wrath of a righteous and just God. We stand justified. Our sin, our guilt, imputed to Christ on the cross. His righteousness, earned through a perfect life, imputed to us. And we stand righteous, declared righteous before God the Father. There's no more wrath. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. That's why we can stand without fear under a measly little husband who might yell at me. Or goofy neighbors who think less of us because of a stand that I'm willing to take and a position that I'm willing to put myself in. That's how we don't fear. Where do we go with all of this? Why do I talk about sufficiency and kind of bring that into this picture? Submission to God always, always precedes submission to your husband. You will not submit to your husband if you are not submitting to God. If you don't believe God or trust God, you will not submit to your husband. If you don't believe God or trust God, you will not trust your husband. You must abandon all hope in yourself. Your lack of submission to a broken husband shows that your hope is in yourself. It can play itself out through through nagging him or, or just really discouraged, driven rhetoric that you use. It shows that your hope is in yourself. Whether you're self-deprecating or whether you're self-exalting, in either case, it's self. And if we're not finding our identity as a family member first in Christ, having been adopted as sons, like we see in Ephesians 1, then in this family relationship, we're not going to have the right identity either. We're going to find our identity in ourself. And when we find our identity in ourself, we do lots of selfish things. And for a wife who's supposed to be submissive and not self-assertive, she's going to be the complete opposite. Again, legislating by herself her moral responsibilities, just as we see in the garden. But when we are submissive to God, we will be submissive to our husband. We will find care and provision and protection under our head. And so how do we do that? <laughs> how do I trust God? How do I submit to God? How do I believe God? The sufficiency of Scripture, I think, ties all of this up. How do I hope in God? Submit in every way that lines up to the Scriptures. I think the, uh, the, the, some of the struggle with submission to, our, to, to husbands is that you don't know when his leadership lines up with the Scriptures. You can't see the overlap of those things because you don't know the Scriptures. If we don't know the Scriptures, we're not going to understand when He's specifically acting in accordance with the will of God. 
And it's going to make our prayer very difficult in trying to discern that. And then it's certainly going to make our trust in acting in that submission very difficult. We have to know the Scriptures. We have to know what the Word of God says. We are without excuse, as we saw at the beginning. We have everything that we need. Now, if you do know the Scriptures, do you find your hope in them? Are they sufficient to you? Or when you come to a passage, you say, what's this really mean? I'll do that if he does this. We have to trust. We have to believe. And look, ladies, where the Scriptures are silent, give some latitude to your husband. Give some latitude to him. Trust that he is seeking wisdom. Trust that he is praying. Trust that he is seeking the Scriptures. Now, in our definition of sufficiency, we talked about it being everything that we need for a godly life. I believe that. Even like De Young says, when it doesn't say everything that we could possibly want to know about everything, it says everything we need to know about what's most important. And given any situation in life, knowing what's most important, I can act in accordance with what will achieve that without knowing explicitly what decision to make from the Scriptures. There's plenty. There's more than plenty. There's all we need in Scripture to see what is honoring to God, whether it's explicit or implicit. Give some latitude to your husband and trust him. He's the one that bears the responsibility, and he'll be the one that's held accountable. It's not your place to usurp there. That's the curse. Your desire will be for your husband to have his place. Submit. Trust. Rest in the comfort of Christ, not in the outcome of your husband's decision. Now, back to the bad side of our spectrum. A man who's at enmity with God. Let's say he's just on the other side. He's saved. But he's silent and leading. Well, guess what? Jesus is not. Jesus is not. He is not silent. Seek Jesus' leadership. Look, we talked about this in two of our house gatherings that I was in this week. What changes from before I do to after I do in your relationship with Christ from the time you were born and saved, particularly, to eternity? What changes? Nothing. Nothing changes in your relationship to God. You're under a different head. You're under a different authority. For a time, who's not going to add to God's word and not going to take away from it? At least your responsibility to it. Nothing changes. In fact, Paul's saying if you can, don't get married. Nothing changes in that relationship. So whether he leads you or not, he didn't lead you for the first 18, 20, 21, 24 years of your life. And whether he does or does not for the rest doesn't change your responsibility to the Word of God and to Christ your Savior. Nothing changes. Jesus is not silent. He wasn't silent before you got married. He's not silent afterwards. Seek his leadership. He did all. His, his redemption is intimately tied, as we talked about at the beginning of today, to his revelation. And that redemption that we talked about, we're going to sing about it. There's this line I want to explain. It says, God estranged from God. You think about this idea of Jesus on the tree, and God turned away, and he felt for the first time in all of eternity separation from God. Whether your husband is estranged from you or not, 
God is not estranged from you. Jesus brought you into relationship as a daughter of the king. That's where you find your hope. How do I hope in God? Your identity is in Christ. Jesus is not silent, and he has given revelation, and it is significantly tied to his redemption of you. So recognize when you're hoping in yourself and not in your relationship, in your status, your position in Christ. And repent for it. It's not that our performance isn't important, but that's not the basis of our identity. And find hope in God's promises. His elect will be saved. His sheep will hear His voice. Those who He has called will come. And wives, His saved daughters will persevere. He will complete the work He has started in you. Despite your husband's ill intentions or good intentions. He will complete the work. Scripture's enough because the work of Christ is enough. They stand or fall together. The Son's redemption and the Son's revelation must both be sufficient for you. There's nothing more to be done and nothing more to be known for our salvation and for our Christian walk than what we see and know about Christ and through Christ and His Spirit breathed an inspired book. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your revelation. And Father, we're thankful for the finality of it that we've, we see in the redemption that you have offered to us. And Father, as we sang last week, it is finished. It's finished. Uh, the victory is won. Uh, and while we may not be in heaven celebrating that victory now, Father, we nonetheless stand in the reality of the fact that you won. Father, I pray for the wives today that, that they were challenged. This submission is a big deal. There's a lot riding on it in our, in our own lives and honoring you and in our witness to this world, whether it be in our um, unequally yoked marriages or whether it be in our uh, Christian cultures of the church or whether it be then in our workplace and beyond. And Father, there's a lot at stake when it comes to this idea of submission. But Father, what's ultimately at stake is your glory. Father, help us take our eyes off ourselves, off of our provision or what we deem is necessary or what we think would be sufficient for us. But Father, that we trust that your grace is sufficient for us. In every circumstance, Father, you have given us all we need in the Word. And Father, you've given us all we need in your Son. Father, press us and stretch us. And let us see that you are sanctifying us. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you've done and for sending your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.